Well, I have a very important theological question for those of you in the building, online. This is raise hands, audience participation time. Are you ready for this? So just get, you know, fire up the brain cells. Let's get ready to go. Who here likes jigsaw puzzles? Oh, there we go. Okay, whoa, okay. Second service likes jigsaw puzzles a lot more than first service. Or second service has drank a lot more coffee than first service. Okay, but like, so let's, let's gauge some interest now. All right, so who is like, uh, dislikes jigsaw, jigsaw puzzles. Anybody dislike? Thank you for being brave and honest. You're with me. I personally just don't think that that's the most fun way to spend, you know, an afternoon or to let something take up space on my table for four years. I just, I'm not a jigsaw puzzler. I do like puzzles. I like to have like some word games or boggle or scrabble or like all that all day long, but you know, just trying to decipher what this piece is blue being different from this piece is blue just is not my happy place. And I know that for different people, you know, different places, we're, we're a church that you just come as you are, no matter how you feel about jigsaw puzzles. That is a question on everybody's mind. Okay, but, but puzzles, they're pretty interesting. And in the first century, when Jesus was alive walking on this earth, he was a puzzle. He was a big question mark in the minds of so many people that interacted with him. And there was this big question mark on like, who and what is this guy? Who and what is this guy? Because to some people, they're like, he is kind of a an outcast, a, a socially, you know, put aside person because there's some kind of sketchy stuff that goes on in the birth story, right? That, that in Jewish mindset um, would not have set him up to be a socially accepted, socially elite. He is not the valedictorian of his school. But then he's also a rabbi and he's got all these disciples following him. And then they're talking about, is he a prophet reincarnated? Is he you know, just a good revolutionary leader that they want to follow? Like, the, there are all these questions that they had. And here we are in a series called Foretold, where we are unpacking basically the story of the Bible. So um, we're just going to cover some light material today, guys. The beginning of the book, all the way to almost the end of the book. Um, but, but really, in this series, we want to talk about the story that God was doing in the Bible from the very beginning. And I think that helps shed some light on the puzzle, because that to this day becomes the big question. We're in a church on Sunday morning, and Jesus is a big deal. And it's a big question for us to wrestle with, like, who is Jesus? Who is he to you? Deep down in your heart, what space does he occupy? And so this is not an academic or esoteric sort of, um, you know, discussion. This is practical stuff. Well, let's pray and jump into God's word. Father God, we invite your spirit here as we want to explore who you are and find answers in the middle of that to who we are and how we're supposed to live in this world today. God, we pray that your spirit would speak 
through your word and speak through your truth um, in a way that gives us clarity in the middle of 2021. And we trust you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I am grateful that this message is going to be the product of a lot of different um, kind of streams of thought. And we, I was telling Ben, it's like you take a bunch of different things, you put them in the Andrew blender, you never know what's going to come out, right? And, and so here we are. This is something that um, David Bessenbacher, Ben Bauman, Mike Miller, and I kind of helped write this message. So if there's something you don't like, that probably came from them. Now, um, the Bible... Um, is what our friends at the Bible Project would say, it is a unified story that leads to Jesus. I love that phrase. That has helped me like, really get some clarity because maybe you, like me, have set out to read the Bible. Uh, maybe you did it in a year and you were like, okay, I got my Bible plan. I'm going to start reading Genesis 1. And your goal in reading the Bible oftentimes is to figure out some answers about Jesus. But here's, spoiler alert, if you start in Genesis 1, Jesus doesn't show up for a really long time. And we have this heart where we say, okay, I want to be a good Christ follower. I want to grow in my relationship with God. And then you get to the middle of this thing, and you're encountering, like, 6th century B.C. emo Hebrew poetry? <laughs> How is that going to help you grow? And oftentimes the Bible can feel so disunified because you've got 66 documents. It's really not a book. It is a library. And we actually work um, as a preaching team on not saying the Bible says because that's actually a very diverse and very like wide-sweeping sort of group of opinions. But rather to go, okay, so Paul says in Ephesians, Daniel says in Daniel, you know, whoever wrote um, Kings, he says, the chronicler says in Chronicles, to get specific about it. Because people like to throw these great big phrases and say, well, the Bible says. And you're like, what, really? Like for the longest time, okay, and my parents are great godly people. I love them, and I try not to throw them under the bus from the stage. But like... There was this whole thing about, like, well, Leviticus says don't get tattoos. So if you got a tattoo, there's the door. No, I'm, I'm joking. That's really not, no. Like, I do that, I'm going out the door. But, like, but the Bible, it's a really disunified thing sometimes. And to make sense of it can be a struggle. There was actually, in the second century AD, a Bible teacher named Marcion who started to teach that in the Bible, there are two gods. There is the big, grumpy, mean, and nasty one of the Old Testament who sends floods and plagues and all that jazz. And then you've got the nice, fuzzy one in the New Testament who's like, love your neighbor as yourself, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all that stuff. And he started to really separate that out. And nobody that I run into, maybe, maybe you want to be cool and hipster and you're going to say this, but most of us will not say, oh yeah, I'm a Marcionite. I've not run into the Marcionite Church of Dallas where there is this idea that there's two gods, he's grumpy in this one, he's nice in this one. Well, but I have met a lot of people who say, I don't want to read the Old Testament. I don't want to read the Bible cover to cover because the picture that we got from Sunday school or the picture that we got from running into people? Like, 
it was this idea that God was kind of grumpy in Genesis, and sometime by Matthew, he takes a chill pill. But really, in the Bible, God has one heartbeat. God has one mission to heal human brokenness and what comes out in the world when Adam and Eve, they are supposed to be the the partner humans that God puts in a garden and says, we're going to do some great stuff in creation. Creation is good. They are good. The story's good. And here they are. And then they decide, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to take the fruit that God says no. I'm going to do what I want, not thy way, but my way. And then Adam and Eve... Thank you very much, Adam and Eve. No, they mess it up. Then there's brokenness in the world. Like, that's the story. And right after that, last week, Ben talked about how um, God promises that there will be the snake crusher. If you ask, this, this might just be the most fun way to approach this. If someone asks you, what's Christmas about, right? What are you celebrating Christmas? Oh, snake crushers. Yeah. We're just going to crush some snakes. It's going to be great. But this promise that God says that evil, the accuser, the dark forces of this world will be beaten, will be crushed, and, you know, no longer in power, that's the story that God begins in Genesis and brings about throughout the whole story of the Bible. And so Adam and Eve, they fell, but God is not going to give up on humanity. And so then you've got Abraham. And God comes to this guy 2500 BC or so and gives him a promise. He says, you will be a great nation, and through you I will bless people in 2021 in Dallas, Oregon. Because he says, I'm going to bless the whole world. Through this line and this story, this is what we are bringing about. And Abraham um, is someone who messes up. And he doesn't trust God. In instances, there's ups and there's downs through his story. Then we run into this guy, Moses, who frees the people of Israel from dark, oppressive slavery in Egypt and brings them out of that as kind of a picture of what God is doing in this story of bringing people out of dark and oppressive slavery into life and freedom. And then years later, they move into the land, and there's this guy named David, And maybe you know some Sunday school songs about David, right? He's a little boy, and round and around in the sling, he fights the giant. Well, here's here's some interesting thing. When David, as the shepherd boy, goes to fight the giant Goliath, in the language, there's almost this picture that Goliath is a little bit of a dragon. Because he's got some scale mail that, like, interlocks, and I'm not going to go you know, super detailed on this, but if you look at the measurements of his armor and stuff like that, there's some sixes that show up, which is kind of significant to biblical imagery. And then what does David do? He grabs the rock, he puts it in the sling, and around and around it goes, just like the Sunday school song. It flies out, and it crushes the head of the big, scary, evil giant that is breathing out threats against God's people. And so if we're reading the story of the Bible, we might go, hooray, he's here! The snake crusher, finally. But then David sees what he wants. Just like Adam and Eve see what they want, he takes what he wants. And he doesn't pass the test. 
And so God's people, they're looking for the Savior. They're like, God, what are you doing in this world? Well, you fast forward another couple hundred years, and they are in exile in Babylon. The temple is destroyed. And they're asking the question, God, what are you doing? And maybe that's a question we have asked God. This year, last year, next week, like, God, what are you doing? And sometimes holding on to the story, trusting what God was, said he was doing can be really hard. And the people of Israel, they go back to the land, they build a new temple, but it's kind of sad and pathetic compared to the previous one. And the people who see the new one are crying because of how sad and pathetic it is compared to what it used to be. And in, you know, Jesus's day, you fast forward and they're asking the question, God, are you done with us? God, weren't you supposed to do something here? And there was even a leader uh, with the name Maccabee and the hammer, and he's supposed to bring the rebellion that fights Rome and kicks them out and brings God's kingdom on earth. He doesn't make it. And so the people are asking this question. Everywhere is saying they have the answers. God, what are you doing in this world? And then you've got this carpenter from Nazareth that shows up is a rabbi, and they've got some questions. Who is he? And then the Bible's answer to that is not one story, right? It's four. You think about that. Maybe you've been reading this book, and you get to that, and you're like, okay, I'm so excited to read the story of Jesus. And then you get it four ways with four snapshots. Let's, let's list them off. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. First service did a lot better of, you know jumping in on that. So maybe the coffee has not kicked in as much as I thought it did. But you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the book of Matthew, it is the super Jewish work. It's going to call back to the Old Testament over and over and over again. Ten times in the book of Matthew, it is going to say this phrase, this happened to fulfill what the prophets had said. Do you know what I think that means? You ready? for the intense, I think it means that that happened to fulfill what the prophets had said. Whoa, I know, that's some exegetical insight right there. But Matthew's going to go back to the story. He's going to show how David is like Moses. David is, or Jesus is like Moses. Jesus is like David. He's like all of these um, Old Testament people, and the story is coming together. And this is the really nerdy fact for the day, and I'll back off a little bit after I let you know this. But I think it's fascinating that maybe the book of Matthew was not written in Greek initially, but translated from Hebrew or Aramaic as the Jesus followers in Israel were clinging to that story. So Matthew is that really Jewish one. Mark is the Roman gospel. It happens so quickly. It is so short compared to the others, and Mark loves this word immediately. And maybe you're like, I wish you'd get over with this sermon. Immediately. No, but like Mark is like, immediately Jesus goes here, and then immediately this happens, and it's action-based. And you get to see who Jesus is, but then at the end, he flips this king idea upside down. Because the Romans were all about the kingdom of me. The, the empire that I can build for myself, my power, how do I get ahead? How do I have more influence and more stuff and more wealth and more power? And I'm just so glad 
that in 2021, we don't struggle with that story in America at all, right? Nobody is scrambling for anything, um, even especially in the Christmas season. We're not trying to fight over each other to get presents. It's good. But Mark flies in the face of power and empire and materialism because he shows that Jesus is about something more. Jesus is about something deeper. Luke has the eyewitness testimony. He has the orderly account where he's interviewing all of these people who saw and did stuff with Jesus. And then you've got John. The Gospel of John is the philosophical one. It's going to just be really open and honest. It starts off, kicks off in chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And maybe you're like, what? Like, that's some, that's some big stuff right there. And in the book of John, he's got these I am statements about who Jesus is. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. And what John does is this brilliant, like, callback to the Old Testament, but he's also looping in some of the pagan thought process of Greek and Roman gods, where he's like, Jesus is better than all the other stories that we get offered. And so John is just really at it with who Jesus is. And when I was in Bible college, I was taught that the way to approach these four stories is to try and make one story. And you try and read them in harmony. You want to harmonize them. So we're going to look at Matthew, and you've got to pull up the parallel passage in Mark and try and sort out the details. One of them says there's one angel. One of them says there's two angels. Well, let's talk about how many angels there actually were instead of maybe asking the question, why? Why does Matthew say this many angels? What, like, based on the significance of what they're doing, what is their snapshot, their angle on who Jesus is, and what does that teach us about who we are and what God is doing? So let's talk about some of the the prophecies or the phrases that get brought up in the middle of this. Number one, Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. Fully divine, 100% God, 100% human. And I'm a theologian, so that math works out. That might not work in other places. What? It's 100% this and 100% that. Many times people want to do the 50-50, but Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. And it took the church about 600 years to figure that out, of church councils and talking it through, studying the scriptures. And it might take me another 600 years to kind of get my brain wrapped around what all that means. But it does say in John chapter 1, it talks about how God comes and dwells among us. In John 1.14, it says in the King James that he tabernacled. That just means to set up a tent. Eugene Peterson, in his translation, The Message, says that God moved into the neighborhood. That God was not content to sit back and say, figure it out for yourselves. But he enters into the mess, and he's going to be with us in the middle of it all. Philippians 2.7 says that he emptied himself of his divinity. I think as a kid... I kind of had this Superman idea of Jesus, that he was like putting the Clark Kent glasses on, but really underneath it, he secretly has an S on his chest, and he's ready to fly out there and do miracles and all that cool stuff. But I don't, I don't think so. I see a lot of Jesus getting tired and hungry 
and embracing limitations. And I think when he does cool stuff, when he does miraculous stuff, he is doing that in the power of the Spirit instead of just because he's Superman and he can snap his fingers and make it all happen. And so Jesus is fully God, but he is also fully man. Over and over again, Jesus is going to call himself the Son of Man. That seems to be his favorite name for himself, which is kind of a weird nickname. I don't think that that's what like, his mom called him when he was growing up. Son of Man, get over here. No, no. But, but rather, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, it's almost like he's doing it with a wink and a smile because he's calling back to something in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is overwhelmed and confused by what he sees God doing in the world. And the vision that he gets, he's like, I'm overwhelmed and I'm confused. And this is what he sees next. Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented to him. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and all nations and languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. And so Daniel puts forth this picture of God partnering with the true human, the true hero, the one who doesn't throw it all away, the one who doesn't mess it all up, but rather stands in the gap to partner with God to bring his kingdom about. And Jesus and little Peter and and Andrew and James and all those little guys, like they grew up in synagogue school learning that passage. And every time Jesus says, who is the son of man? Who does everyone say that that is? He's he's unzipping this, this zip file, this drive. He's uploading what it says. And so let's think about that as we jump in with Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said to him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. They're like, okay, so people are trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is. He's not what they expected. He hasn't started his revolutionary uprising And they're parsing through, well, maybe he's a prophet who's reincarnated. Verse 15, he asks them the question, he says, but who do you say that I am? And I think that that little parallel is really powerful, because sometimes in our heart, we're like, okay, so here's the noise around an issue. Here's what everybody's saying. And sometimes that's a distraction from the real question we need to get at. You ever done that? Someone asks you something, and you're like, well, you know, it says on Google you have to do it this way or that way or this way. These people say it this. Those people say it that. But what are you going to do? What do you say? What does this mean for your life? And Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That word Christ is the Greek for Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word, anointed one. Christ is the Greek the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven, I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. On this statement, this idea 
that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the one who brings meaning into the situation. From that, we do battle against evil. From that, the church, the community of God is built. And so Jesus is the true Adam. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tempted in a desert. Just like Adam and Eve are tempted in a garden, Jesus resists. He's that true human. He is also the king from the line of David. He is the root or shoot of Jesse. And that's calling back to an image from the Old Testament. Who's got a garden um, that they grow not in the wintertime? Anybody got a garden here? I see some gardeners. I know there's gardeners. Okay, all right. Um, who's got trees in their front yard? You got some trees? Yeah, we love trees and agriculture. Well, um, olive trees are what they had a lot of in the Middle East. And when I was in the Mount of Olives in the garden, um, I saw one of these olive trees, and it was kind of died out and dried out. It was like a husk that looked pretty dead. And in the middle of this, it's kind of these, one of these gnarly, twisted-up things, almost like what you would see in eastern Oregon when you're hiking in the desert there. And this green shoot was starting to grow out of, out of the holes, out of the middle of this kind of dead thing. And you could see that this new little life was sprouting up. Well, Isaiah is taking that image in mind in chapter 11 when he says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's David's dad, that family line. And, from, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, that the line of David, this kingly line, is not broken, and in the same way that that olive tree is getting renewed and is growing into something new, God is going to do something new in the middle of this story. And I think that's true. I think that's a great picture for what God does in our lives. How many of us have experienced something that we thought was died out and dried out, that God was done with it, and there's a little bit of hope that starts to grow up. There's a little bit of hope that God does something new. And it's through this renewal with these olive trees that some of those are the very same trees that Jesus would have either like, you know, leaned against or touched or been praying in Gethsemane. That's still standing today because of this renewal that God is doing. And so God is telling in the Old Testament the people of Israel not to give up, and that Jesus is that David king, except he's not going to fail it this time. Throughout the whole book of Psalms, over and over again, there's these pictures. Psalm chapter 2 talks about the true king of God. Psalm 22 talks about how Jesus would be plotted against, mocked, insulted, that he would be betrayed by a friend. His friends would abandon him, and even that his bones would not be broken. All in the book of Psalms. Jesus is also the prophet like Moses. Last week we talked about that the prophet like Moses would come to the people of Israel and that God's words would be in his mouth. And if you look at the story of Jesus, maybe this starts to sound familiar. There's a king who's threatened and angry at all the male children, and so he goes to kill in a certain region all the male children, and this one gets whisked away. And maybe you're thinking, okay, Moses, Charlton Heston, like, Jesus, like, it's all kind of in that story. 
And then later, with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to stand up and on a mountain tell everybody how to live. What is the new way of life that God calls us to? He's going to go out and heal people, which is a reversal of what would have happened in the Old Testament. Because you get taught, now don't just breeze past this because you heard it in Sunday school, that Jesus healed lepers. And when you're three and in Sunday school, you call them leopards, right? So Jesus healed all the leopards. But, but what he, they're doing there was in the Old Testament, that was a symbol of the unholiness, the brokenness, the darkness, the struggle that we experience in the everyday. We look out in this world and we wish things were different. That's because we are image bearers of God. And that leprosy or that skin disease in their symbology was, was symbolic of that brokenness. And what would happen is you couldn't touch them because if you touch the leprosy, it spreads to you. And you take on that brokenness. Well, Jesus enters in and what does Jesus go up? He, he heals the leprosy, his wholeness is transmitted to that person instead of him getting the brokenness. And it's, it's this reversal. It says in there that he, he heals people so that they may know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. And the biggest and final way that the gospel shows what Jesus is doing in God's plan is at the end of his life in the book of Mark, it really paints this picture that he is crowned a king. He is crowned a king, but it's the upside-down way. Jesus gets a crown on his head, but it's a crown of thorns. He gets a scepter, but it's a rod that he's beaten with. He gets his kingly robes, but they're taken from him. There's even, okay, how did we miss this? There's even a sign on top of his head that says, this is the king. And it's missed because it's this upside-down kind of mocking way. And when Jesus is on the cross, he says the words about the whole story of God, what God has been doing. He says, it is finished. What God has been bringing about is completed. And three days later, he rises from the dead, and his community, his disciples, they believe in him, they get new life, and that echoes forth until 2021 Christmas time in Dallas we are talking about this event because it echoes forth through history and that question who is Jesus how does that play out in our lives on Monday how does that play out in the way that we do life the way we interact with people and the big point that I really just want to come to in this is that we should make Jesus king if this is who he is, if he is the king that this has all been about, then let's make Jesus king. Let's make him king of our lives. Let's wrestle with that question, who is Jesus to you? And so maybe that means we need to get real about who actually runs our life. Who is actually at the steering wheel? Because God does not fit into our agenda, we have to fit into his agenda. And so often with my prayer life and the way that I want my relationship with God to go, I get that backwards. Because I say, God, here's my laundry list of things I'm going to ask you for, I'm going to try and do and be, and will you just please help me with my agenda? And the reality is, 
that Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, Thy will not, my will. Number two, if you say you love Jesus, then maybe we need to do what he says. I've been thinking about just the fact that that word integrity, which we throw around in like spiritual growth and, you know, character growth and all this good stuff, really means to be integrated, to open up all of the different areas of our life and let Jesus in. Because I have, I've seen in my life, I've seen in other people's lives that we have this tendency to say, well, this little box is mine. God, you can have all the rest of my life, but this little box is mine and I'm really not open to surrendering that to you. And we do need to open that up. We need to let Jesus in and bring life to all of these different areas. He needs to bring light to the dark recesses of our soul. And sometimes we need to deal with that. We need to open that up, and that's uncomfortable, but it's good. Number three, we might need to put him back on the throne if we have pushed him off. Maybe you've played King of the Hill before. I think I am maybe one of the last generation, right, to play games like that, where, like, we would, you know, push each other in the dirt and the mud, and we would, like, ride bikes and talk to each other on walkie-talkies and get splinters from play structures, and we lived. And that's really good. But we did. We played that game where we would shove and push each other, and you're trying to stand on the spot. I am the oldest of three brothers. I am very good at this game. But how often do we do that with our hearts? and our life. And we're like, no, God, I'm going to give you the throne. You sit on it. You be the king of my life. I'm going to go over here, and in 15 minutes, if you haven't fixed it, I'll just come back in, and I'll fix it. I'll deal with it. This year, I had a mentor encourage me to start to write out on index cards some of the things that I'm really stressed about, I'm worried about, and to put them in a box. Just call that the God box. We're going to put it in there. I'm surrendering this to God. So I write out my stuff. I put it in my box. And one of them, a couple days later, I literally did this. I went up to the box, and I took it out. Because I said, if I leave it there, I'm being a hypocrite. Because I have not let this go. I am not there yet. I, I need some work in my heart. And I think that that could be a good invitation to let God in when we feel that resistance, when we're struggling with some of that stuff, to not run away from it, but sometimes to grow, you got to lean in. And so let's put him back on the throne. Let's let him be there. Let him stay there. And maybe it's time for you to go all in with Jesus as the king of your life. It's really important to us here at Dallas Church. We are not all at the same place on our spiritual journey. Some of us have been walking with Jesus for a long time. Some of us have taken breaks from walking with Jesus. Or maybe you grew up in Sunday school. You said church wasn't for me. And then you're kind of getting back into it. And so this is a safe place. This is a good place to start to dip your toes in or start to explore and figure out what do I really think about Jesus? You will not get kicked out of any small group for being like, you know, maybe I don't actually believe this. Maybe I'm struggling with what this actually means for my life. But maybe God is working on your heart. And it's time. 2022 is the year that you're going to go all in. You're going to live for Jesus. 
You're going to make him Lord of your life, give your life to him? I don't know. Our, our pastors here, we'd love to talk with anybody, kind of help you on your spiritual journey. We're always available for that, even if we don't mention it at the end of our sermons. So let's pray and make Jesus king. Father God, we are here to worship you and to love you and to grow in you. I pray that this season we would refocus on what matters, what's true, what's, uh, what's your story. And even when we get confused, when we look out in the world, we see things that we wish were not the case. God, that our hearts would still hearken back to you. Let's make you king. Amen.